This forum is part of the City Club's Criminal Justice Series, sponsored by the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here and proud member. Today at the City Club, we are joined by Jarrett Adams, attorney, advocate, and author of the book, Redeeming Justice, From Defendant to Defender, My Fight for Equity on Both Sides of a Broken System, which is part of our Authors in Conversation and Criminal Justice series. You may remember Jarrett from the last time he joined us at the City Club back in August of 2016. Then Jarrett shared his powerful story of, of how at just 17 years old, he was wrongfully convicted of sexual assault and sentenced to 18 years in a maximum security prison. Jarrett would go on to serve 10 years before being exonerated with the help of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. Jarrett would then go on to become a lawyer himself with the goal of helping those like himself who had faced discrimination in the legal system. Jarrett Adams earned his Juris Doctorate from Loyola University Chicago School of Law in May 2015 and started a public interest law fellowship with Anne Claire Williams, judge for the Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, the very same court that reversed his conviction. Jarrett also clerked in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York with the late Honorable Deborah Batts. After working for the Innocence Project in New York, he launched the law office of Jarrett Adams in 2017 and now practices in both federal and state courts throughout the country. In his new book, Redeeming Justice, Jarrett outlines the racist tactics used to convict young men of color, the unique challenges facing exonerees once released, and how the lack of equal representation in our courts is a failure not only of empathy, but of our collective ability to uncover the truth. So, what are the limits and possibilities of our country's system of, system of law? And what can we learn from Jarrett, Jarrett Adams' story to work towards a justice system that is truly just for all? Moderating the conversation today is Michael Muti, partner and appellate group chair at Benish Freelander. And Michael is also a longstanding member of the Northeast Ohio chapter of the American Constitution Society, a nationwide network of progressive lawyers, judges, students, and professors all dedicated to the promise of the Constitution and the values it embodies. Guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Jarrett Adams and Michael Muti. Well, Jarrett, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, and thank you, uh, Cleveland City Club. Had I known it was going to be about four years since the last time I was going to be here, I would have hugged you guys a little bit longer. Right? <laughs> so uh, I'm thankful to be here again. Excellent. And, and congratulations on the book. Yes. It, it is a uh, tremendous accomplishment to knock out a book and, and all the more to write a really, really good one. Yeah. It, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was, it was difficult because I wanted to make sure I did it right. Uh, it would be easy to 
you know, as I listen to the, the list of accomplishments and stuff like that, you know, I sometimes daydream because it just took too much to get here, Mike, to be able to tell the story. And so I wanted to make sure that when I wrote the book, I wasn't just writing a book to impress you guys on my accomplishments, but to impress upon people the importance of what we're losing and what we need to start saving and just get to doing it and, and away from the talking about reform. Well, amen to that. And I'll tell you, um, you know, we've known each other six years now. We met yeah. in 2015 at an American Constitution Society convention. Right. And, and the night we met is seared into my memory because I remember sitting out on a patio with a group of other people at the convention hearing your story right. and being moved literally to tears in front of a bunch of people who I didn't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so I knew your story. Yeah. But the book, nonetheless, was a real page turner for me and it does a great job of conveying your story and connecting yeah. it to larger themes. Yeah, and, I, and that one thing I thought about was this. So when I'm thinking about writing a book, um, my wife who's here with me as well, we, we started talking about our favorite books. And, and like one of our favorite books together was Hidden Figures. So the book Hidden Figures didn't just tell you about the racism and discrimination that was faced of the women when they did a lot of the work that was not you know, credited to them in NASA. They talked about you know, all you know, forms of, of prejudice and barriers of racism that kept them from thriving in all walks of life. So I wanted to, to I, had this, I had this belief that getting this law degree would be like some blanketed shield where I can go off and just save every black boy like Jared Adams. And then I started to practice law, you know, Mike, and I, and I started to realize that um, my, my next act is to inspire um, and ready the hand of the next generation of torch carriers and, and, and legal warriors because that, that's what we have to do. We have to equip uh, folks with the skill set and the knowledge to be able to diversify the legal system, and that's how you get to diversity throughout the system. So I wrote it with the perspective of, this isn't just me, um, this isn't just my family. What's happening here is the community, especially the communities of color, are feeding the prison system its babies. And in turn, the prison system is feeding the communities of color, late 30-year-old, early 40-year-old men and increasingly women who aren't skilled or ready to reintegrate back into society, and they also are in desperate need of mental health care and social work. It's a really important point. There are so many different areas we can talk about that are in need of reform, but let's yeah. pick up on that thread and talk a little bit about reintegration. And maybe right. you can talk about some of the challenges you face and how yeah. that informs the reforms that we need to have. Yeah, so, so for example, I'm exonerated. My record is expunged. So technically and officially, per the law, I don't have a record. I was never convicted. So I was figuring out how to get off the south side of Chicago to closer to downtown because my commute at night was just so dangerous coming from work and having to go to school. So I'm literally coming home at like midnight. And so I started to apply for these different apartments, you know, that are, that are considered in affluent areas downtown towards where my school was. And I was getting mysterious no's, Mike, and I couldn't really, you know, put it together at all. And there was this one lady who came out of her office, caught me in the, in the parking lot, and she told me, she says, listen, um, I don't know if you know this, but when they do a credit check, one of your last known addresses is a prison. And so literally exonerated 
graduating from law school the following, you know, year, uh, because I was moving like incrementally as I started to like I was moving incrementally. Um, and this this apartment was like in a really safe, you had a doorman type of thing. And so I knew I was doing a clerkship and I just I just, you know, was befuddled. But but it also made me write this down. Right. Because I wanted to be able to share this process to be able to show people if we have a system that you go and you serve your sentence. And when you get out, there's another hitting sentence. It's never over with. And, and, and who, who, is, who is bearing the brunt of that? The communities of color that I just talked about, right? Because that's, I never reintegrated back into, you know, downtown. I went right back into the neighborhood in, in which, you know, I grew up in. And so when you think about that, you, you think about the totality. And really, if, if the community of color is a chair, the legs are missing based off what the criminal justice system is doing to it. Yeah, the, and I really enjoy the way the book relayed some of the indignities. I mean, even the yeah. simplest thing like getting an ID. You know, you yeah. get caught into this scenario where mom, can I go outside to ask your dad? Dad, can I go outside mm -hmm. to ask your mom? You know, e each form you need, you need the other form in order yeah. to get. Um, and so you face those kind of hurdles right. in order to find a job, find a place to live. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit as well about the need for uh, counseling and to help people right. overcome the trauma associated with being incarcerated? I can't, I can't overstate this. Like my, my mom and my aunts were, were instrumental in, in me getting therapy, but I, I must share this because it's important, especially to, to, the, to the black men and young men to understand um, it's okay to not be okay and need to talk to someone. And I think that, that you know, a lot of bravado and a lot of, uh, you know, male ego um, allows us to, to feel like we can fix it ourselves. And I couldn't fix it myself. My issue was this. When I came home, my friends weren't turning up. They were turning down. They had kids. They had careers. And I felt like if I just worked hard enough, I would be able to catch up with this 10 years. And it wasn't healthy mentally and it wasn't possible. And there were things and moments in life that would break me down to make me realize that. Um, and that's when I became receptive to, to getting to therapy. I'll give you an example. So who doesn't go when it's around the holidays and you're with your family and you usually open up photo books and photo albums and you go through pictures and you, whether, whether it's hot chocolate, apple cider, or spike cider, like you guys are going through, you know, the, the years. And I'm going through, um, you know, I'm going through the photo album, Michael, and I'm, I'm um, I'm looking at myself as a kid, and I'm seeing the evolution of me, uh, you, you know, pre-K, eighth grade. Uh, my last picture is of a high school picture of me graduating. Um, my family's pictures continue. Mine's don't pick back up until 10 years later in the photo album. So it was stuff like that that, that made it real. Um, and again, I continue to document this because I knew I wanted to write a book, just didn't know how I wanted to write it, but I knew I wanted to tell these real stories because it, we're not, we're not going to strong on my way to reform. It's just going to, you know, ignite more debate. We have to politely indict people on their heartstrings of sympathy and empathy to get them to look at people as people. And that was, that was what I prayed came across in the book. Close your eyes. What mother couldn't you know, identify with my mom who was beating herself up 
simply because she couldn't afford me an attorney. I mean, getting into it with, with, my, with my stepfather along the way because she was trying to get money out of the 401k. Those are real life problems that you don't see in the courtroom, but they play out and they cripple our community. That's right, that's right. Um, I, I wanna pick up on, on something you just mentioned about the difficulty it, you had in finding a lawyer. Yeah. It, you know, our economy is becoming increasingly two-tiered mm -hmm. and I don't think I'm telling any secrets if I say most of the people who are uh, charged with crimes are not coming from the hmm. upper echelon of, yeah. of that two-tiered system. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the difficulty you had in finding a lawyer yeah. allowed things to get uh, off the rails. Well, I mean, that's what it was all about. I mean, and, and to that point, we're doing early research right now. 80% um, of people charged are not able to afford attorneys in, in, you know, in America, in our criminal justice system. So you just think about that. That means what? They're going to the public defense system, right? I don't even need to tell you guys how broken the public defense system is across the country. You look at public defenders, um, and shout out to public defenders who are watching this. I, I support you and scream loudly uh, in that voice. You're talking about public defenders who are managing 50 to 75 cases at a time. Michael, if me and you handled that amount, we'd be in front of the board of bar examiners, <laughs> right? So, so that tells the tale of just how lopsided it is. And so with me in particular, we were, we, I was assigned a panelist attorney because the public de defender's office conflicted out of my case. And, it, and I go into the details of the book and I take people slowly through just how much and how important representation is. You know, other stark realities is this. When someone is on trial facing the rest of their life, you'd be lucky if you get all of the discovery before the trial starts. If I'm suing you, I could find out your grandmother's favorite color if I can make it relevant to the lawsuit. So those are the stark differences. So where you, you can get access to everything if you're suing about money. But if you're on trial for your life, good luck. And that's, that's, a, that's the reality of, of our system and how broken it is. And I, I found myself saying to myself, I don't know how anyone could ever plead guilty if they're not guilty. I never did it and didn't have an understanding. When I started to teach men in the, in the law library, you know, it was a requirement that you get your GED or something like that. I started to help men with, with their cases. I came across man after man after man, Michael, who pled guilty to get out of the county jail because they were sick of being there and they thought that they would lose their jobs and lose their families, only to get sentences and their life was essentially placed on layaway and they came back to prison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, it, it, you know, your story is, um, in, in one sense, not uncommon. Not at all. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who are facing unjust incarceration, unjust mm -hmm. sentences now. What makes your story unique is that there was light at the end of the tunnel, that yeah. you were able to get out and then uh, get your education, not just a, a BA, but also yeah. a JD. Um, I know we talked a little bit before about some of the hurdles that other exonerees have faced. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a former client of yours, yeah. uh, Glenn Ford, I believe. 
Can yeah. you tell a little bit about his story? So, so Glenn wasn't my client, but he was, a, he was a case that we studied. So I have a nonprofit called Life at the Justice. And basically what we're doing is we, we are, are it's, it's three tiers. We have strategic litigation, a focus on mental health care and policy change, but also the, the, the problem that is when people are exonerated of crimes, there aren't easy access to compensation like you would think. And I know people are confused because you'll see a media coverage of so-and-so just won $25 million or something like that. That is less than a 10%, 2% of what people who are exonerated, what they come home and what they face. And then there are barriers in terms of even getting state compensation and stuff like that. So in particular, Glenn Ford is, a, is an important case because Glenn Ford was exonerated and he was exonerated in the state of Louisiana and he had cancer. And he came home, and instead of him being compensated and given the health care that he needed, he literally died on his deathbed while the prosecutor who prosecuted the case also advocated for him to be compensated. His compensation was denied, and it was basically denied on a technicality. They acknowledged that he was innocent, but then they took no liability because of that thing that we're dealing with now, qualified immunity. And so it was, it, it was a story that not many people you know, know about who didn't catch the nightly news, but it's one in which that I mention all the time, even though I've never met this man, I can't tell you that, that I slept good after that night of looking at this, you know, this interview. And it was an interview conducted on 2020, you guys can just check it out. And Glenn is laying there in his deathbed, simply just asking to be compensated. Um, and, it, and it's a struggle for me to believe that our society is okay with it, so that's why we need to talk about it, talk about it and fix it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there are so many different angles we can look at these problems from. Mm -hmm. You know, that Glenn's story is a story about a failure to right a wrong. Um, the, the short staffing and lack of resources of the public defender is a way to prevent it from happening in the first place. Um, another thing you and I had talked about before is uh, prosecutorial reform as yeah. a way to keep these accidents or uh, these injustices yeah. rather from yeah, happening in the first place. Um, um, what are some of the ways you think we could reform the way prosecutors' offices operate yeah. to make the system more fair? Well, again, we have. Well, well, let me say this: this has to be a holistic approach. You know, it can't just be on one end. Um, and I mention this a lot as well with with police reform you know, community relations, the, the innocent black men dying and stuff like that. It has to be a holistic approach. We need both the judiciary, um, the lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys, everybody to come together and treat this just like we tre treated the pandemic, because it is a pandemic. That's exactly what we're dealing with. And so in terms of, of prosecutors and in terms of, of, of police and in terms of everyone in the criminal justice system, Man, as quickly as possible, Mike, we need to figure out how to bridge the gap between social workers, mental health care providers, and stuff like that. Because those are the people who, who help us realize that each name or each person that comes before us is a new case, deserves new attention, and not the biases that we, we all have, you know? So I think, about, I think about that when I think about the, the, the prosecutors and prosecutor reform. But I also think about this. We, again, struggle with the diversity of it. If you look at the, the prosecutor's offices across the nation, you literally have um, very few uh, people of color who are, are at the helm. And then um, on those that you do, because it's, it's in oftentimes a political position, 
they find themselves campaigning all the time as opposed to, to rooting out the bad apples in the office and really doing change because, because it, there's no stability there. So I think that here's the best analogy that I can use, Michael. So our criminal justice system um, is a sink, right? Um, it's leaking, leaking bad. And we keep trying to change the faucet. We've even got shiny faucets, but it keeps leaking because we just don't want to do what we need to do. And that's tear up the floor and fix the pipes. That's right. That's right. Y'all uh, like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it sounds like one of the things we really need is kind of a cultural shift within prosecutors' offices to get out of the mold of, you know, my job is to lock up the bad yeah. guys and instead to review cases holistically. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are some institutional reforms that you support as well, like conviction integrity units, um, exemptions or yeah. exceptions to immunity rules, uh, other ways that we might spur that kind of cultural change yeah. within prosecutors' offices. I, I think people should, should pay attention to what Larry Krasner is doing in Philadelphia. Um, he's not the only one. You have Melinda Katz in, in, in New York and Queens. Ken Thompson, the late great Ken Thompson, started one in Brooklyn, and this was the Conviction Integrity Unit. My, my thing with Conviction Integrity Units is this. Um, there, shouldn't have to, has, there shouldn't have to be a unit if we were handling these cases fairly all the time. Now, the fact that there is a unit, I'm encouraged by it, but, however, there are a few units that are operating like Krasner in Philadelphia uh, and some of the others. You know, you, we give me talk about Marilyn Mosby um, and what she's doing. And it's, it's one of these things where, just like what you said, culturally it has to shift. I'll give you an example. So when you have people running for positions of attorney general or um, of uh, prosecutors, have you ever heard people stand up and say, would vote for me because I'll make sure that I get it right. I'll prosecute bad apples. I'll go against this entire system and make sure that it's treating people fairly. I'll start to find creative ways to hold people accountable for why guns are entering these neighborhoods and stop just hammering the people in the neighborhoods. You've never heard that. You hear people get up and say, vote for me. I got a 99.99.99 conviction rate, and I'm also going to get this new prison built over here and also this new jail facility over here. For whatever reason, that, that rhetoric from, 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 from far and beyond has been successful in getting people in office. And so that's why people are afraid to shift away from that culture. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a bit about um, reforming public defenders' offices and, yeah. and directing more resources that way. We've talked a bit about ways we can fix prosecutors' offices. Um, police reform has been a big topic here in Cleveland since yeah. even before Tamir Rice was killed Tragic. seven years ago now. Right. Um, and, and it's been a major, major focus of the national conversation, rightly so, over the past year and a half. Yeah. Um, Based on your experiences, what would you like to see inside police departments in yeah. order to, um, to turn down that pipeline a little bit? Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a theme throughout, um, and it's in my book as well. Social workers, therapists, psychologists. You know, I have a friend, you know, a childhood friend where, you know, when I was, was wrongfully arrested and convicted, it was just me and him a lot. Right? So when I left, he ended up joining the service. Um, he left the service, 
became you know a police officer he's now um, an officer at the VA hospital and we have these conversations a lot and so he just tells me from the inside the perspective you know that he has of what's going on and basically it's a culture thing inside of there too I mean if you if you whatever competition it is if you pit sides people are trying to win Michael and that's what we have and so if, if I'll say this again if you lined up all the police officers and law enforcement in society up against the wall you need to plug in a therapist in between each one right <laughs> because that's the only way that we get out of this look there's a reason why there's a field of people who study people right and so why are we stupid enough not to listen to them right right and, that, and this is why we have to do this and what I'm saying is this when people said defund the police I think what was missed was that really meant allocating, reallocating the funds. So we're not asking that police, you know, now be walking around with, with batons and no guns, even though they should, like England, and then we wouldn't have um, shootings like this. But what we're asking for is, we're asking for, what's wrong with us asking for more educated, thoughtful, uh, um, uh, well-rested, um, you know, people to police our neighborhoods? There's nothing wrong with asking for that. And now we have to go from not asking to demanding. And we demand by lawyers litigating and the judiciary ordering things to happen. It sounds to me like the, a recurring theme. Like what I picked up from your book and what I'm picking up a lot from you here today is just recognition of humanity. Yes. You, know, you were not recognized as a human being when you were incarcerated. You were hardly recognized as a human being by your appointed counsel. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the problems you seem to be relating right now is that police are not relating to people as human beings. A yeah. And trained professionals can help to facilitate that mindset shift so yeah. that we can all begin to relate better that way. I mean, absolutely. You know, I was on a panel with Wes Moore, um, mm. and I'm, I'm sure you guys are, are familiar with him. One of the things that stuck out that Wes said was, he says during this tour, um, he's walking around in Iraq and literally, you know, he's trying to introduce himself and stuff like that. And he used the analogy that that's what's happening in our society. Look, we have police in areas walking around. They're not from these areas. Um, if you're not from the areas, you don't, you don't know, you know, what things are and what they aren't, you know, and, it, and it's like, you can tell the stark difference. When you go into these communities of color, it seems like an occupation going on by the police. But when you go in affluent communities, they're policing. Like, they don't do anything unless they see anything, right? right. In Chicago, in other cities, in Cleveland and stuff like that, they're going in to find something. That, that's different. You know, and that's how you create these injustices, and that's how you alienate the community from ever trusting you. I, was, I went to, to uh, got a case right now in Chicago. Um, so I was looking for a witness, and <laughs> I go up on the porch, knock on the door, and there's a little boy, and he's like, Mama, it's the police, because I, <laughs> I had a suit on, right? <laughs> and he like, shut the blinds on me, right? I'm like, you know? But in that lighthearted moment, it also told me this. Even the kids of these communities are, are victims of what they believe policing in their communities are like. Like, that's a, that's a real point right there. Like, I, you know, I don't want to appear as, as being smarter than I actually am. I just read a lot of different stuff, right? I, I just challenge myself to read a lot of different stuff. And I also support my arguments in court 
with a lot of, of, of science and data and stuff like that. And when you do that, you start to learn, right? Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is, um, I think we need to learn our way out of this situation. We had 2.3 million people incarcerated. We have 900,000 um, almost, if not, uh, still incarcerated black men. And, 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 and I'll use that pandemic analogy again. So we were able to get out of the pandemic by developing a vaccine. So what is a vaccine? It's actually the virus created into an antibody injected into our body. We aren't saving these communities of color from violence unless we start to get the men and women who are in prison who've been there for 25, 30 years in, in better shape to reintegrate back into society and fix their communities. And I'll use another analogy, right? Um, so in these communities uh, that predominantly make up people who are locked up, they know what the problem is, Michael. Like, they're not, you know, these people aren't dumb people. They're victims as well. They know what the problem is. They know how to fix it. But they're usually the furthest away from the solution and the fixable items, right? Which is why we need to empower and, in, and put people who are in these communities in leadership position. And the one thing that I hate hearing that I can't let go is this. So when you talk about diversity, and you talk about diversity in the legal field, on the bench, and prosecutor's offices, and stuff like that, even in law firms, more importantly, in big law firms, right? The head of law firms are not diverse as they should be. And so they're responsible as well, all hands on deck. But when you, when you look at that, what I hate to hear is, I mean, when we're looking, well, look, stop looking and start creating. We got to invest into these communities and start yeah. to get people the skills and stuff <laughs> like it is to contribute to society. Why well, just sit back and wait? and say, well, there's no good candidates. It's our job and our duty to, to create these candidates. And speaking about books, if someone picked up the book of your life, right, your family, your loved one picked up the book of your life, would they be satisfied with what you did with the criminal justice system and what we're doing right now? And I ask that specifically because there were people back when slavery was going on who wasn't for slavery but they just was like, that's not my business, right? Yeah. So now what I'm saying to you all is this. Are we going to let that happen again? It's everyone's business. No, you're exactly right about that. And a theme we'd hit on before um, in our private conversations is the idea that by not doing that, we're losing twice. You know, we we yes. failed to develop this yeah. giant wellspring uh, of human talent. Absolutely. And then we pay again for yeah. that failure to develop that talent when we have instances like three generations of people locked up in the same institution yeah. like you relayed in the book. It was, it was a, and I'm, I'm like literally, everyone has a nickname in prison. So I'm hearing them call each other nicknames, G-Pops, Old Man, Grandson. I'm like, man, they got some cool nicknames around here. <laughs> I get on a visit, there's, it's three generation of men being visited by two black ladies with a toddler in tow. And I just will never forget this young girl coming through the visiting door, extending her arm, knowing to be wand by a, a, a security guard. And you, you gotta understand that that is impactful, right? Children are like sponges, they pick up on things. And so when something like that, it, it, when you see stuff like that, it's, it's, a, it's a red flag and it's a telltale sign that we are doing something wrong. And, and in a situation, like, like that again, I know that there are safety, there are, there, are, there are concerns, but we gotta do it a different way, Michael. We have to, and this is what I'm trying to tell you, we have to implement the, the social worker and the therapy angle 
for they can let us know exactly what we need to do be impactful. And also this, why not? Because what we've been doing ain't working. You know, we, 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 we've spent how much money on the war on drugs and we have the result of mass incarceration in a crippled black and brown community. So now let's do this. Let's spend a fraction of that on revitalizing these communities. I want to see the best of the best teachers in the worst areas in Cleveland. Go get me the best of the best teachers, Stanford, Yale, whatever it is. Do a project for 15 years. Call me back. You tell me if a better product isn't coming from those impoverished areas. Indeed, indeed. So we're getting close to the wrap-up time. Here. Already? Before, seriously. Um, one of the things um, I always walk away from events like this with is a question. And yeah. that question is, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, and, and so we've talked about some policies that everybody in the room and everybody listening on the radio and right. live streaming and so on ought to be advocating for. Yeah. Um, there are great organizations out there. There's uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the American Constitution Society, which does some work on the policy side. Right. There's your organization, uh, Life After Justice. Yes. Um, what would you encourage the people in this room and the people listening out yeah. there to do tomorrow, the day after? How right. do we get to work? So I'll say this, because me and you are lawyers, um, and I believe we're in the presence of some, some Supreme Court justices as well and other legal professionals. Um, here's what I'll say. Um, this country was founded on litigation. Uh, we need to litigate these issues that we have right now. We need to take and fund as much research to support uh, brief filings that we pray will get to the Supreme Court and change what we have right now. If it's not the, the legislator and the statutes that are being implemented to, to, to ease um, the, the mass incarceration, then we need to litigate our way there. And we can't do that without everyone. And what I'm talking about is everyone is this. I am talking about the biggest of the biggest law firms. I am talking about these firms getting involved, helping with litigation. I am talking about these people in this room convening like this to follow and watch. It's not going to happen overnight. And that's the thing that everyone has to understand. There's no right answer to make you walk out of here and go press a button. So what we need to do is this. We have to continue to convene and we have to inch this thing along because our job is to hand this world to the people behind us in the shape that we would want to continue to live in it in. I love it. I absolutely love it. So we've all got our work cut out for us, we've heard. Absolutely. Um, lawyers, we're going to litigate. Students, you're going to continue learning and get ready to, to build a better future. Um, and, and I see Cynthia back up. So um, That was a quick 35. If my court hearings went like that, I would be great, okay? Everyone, uh, Jared and Michael Muti. Yeah. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum in our Authors in Conversation series, as well as our Criminal Justice series, featuring Jared Adams, author of Redeeming Justice, From Defendant to Defender, My Fight for Equity on Both Sides of a Broken System. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream online or the radio broadcast on 90.3 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work it into the program. 
Today, we have our amazing City Club volunteers attending the microphones, and may we have the first question, please. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you're here today. Um, tomorrow there's a program in East Cleveland at the East Cleveland Public Library from 1 to 4 o'clock. And a part of that program is going to be a panel talking about our Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Center. Mm -hmm. And the conditions there are horrendous. Um, uh, children are being left in their cells for long periods of time. They're being sent to bed without eating. I have a friend who teaches there. She says that they're not being uh, let out their cells to get their iPads for their education, which is against state law. I serve on the State Board of Education, and I'm very concerned about it. Uh, and so I guess what I'm asking you is, what are your thoughts on it? Have, are you familiar with what's going on there? And what, what do you think can be done about it? Yeah. Um, is, that's for me or for, for Michael? I'm sorry. It's for you. It's for you. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but so, both of you can respond if you want to. Yeah, and I, I'll definitely want you to uh, respond to this too because I, I want to make sure whenever I make statements, they're educated. And, and so since I'm not a resident of Cleveland, um, you know, I can't speak to exactly what's going on. But what I can tell you is this. Uh, there are similarities across the country with the issues that you're talking about. And this goes to the last point that I made. Um, I'll ask you a question. Are you guys being represented by a big law firm? When you say you guys, I... You and the issue that you're, you're, you're bringing on, the, on the behalf of the kids at the Juvenile Justice Center. Not that I know of. It doesn't, see, get, it doesn't get talked about. Right. It really and doesn't so, get talked about. So what, what I mean by that is this. It's time for, it's time for everyone um, who has a law degree um, and, and even everyone to step up and do something. Mm -hmm. So the issues that you raise are very concerning because what that means is this. If that's going on right now in the juvenile system, mm -hmm. those kids will be alley-oops for the yep. adult system yep. is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just their problem, their community's problem. It's everyone's problem because if not, if we don't step in right now, we are incubating you know, adult offenders mm -hmm. is what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And so just by you asking that question is important. And now the next step is who do we identify um, and, and hopefully someone watching this program can reach out to you to start the litigation. There's only so much that ACLU um, can do and handle with the resources that they have. We need people to step up to the plate and take a pass on some of those, you know, those Christmas, you know, parties and start to do some of these cases that are meaningful and impactful, not just for them, but for everyone. Okay. Thank you. Did you have, you like, I'm good. I don't need no follow. <laughs> I can't follow that other than yeah. to say we should talk afterward. Yeah. Hello, my name is John Colcaro and I'm a student at Wycliffe High School. Before I ask, I just want to say, this is for Jarrett. Your story is so inspirational, but at the same time, it's also one of the stories where it's hard for anybody who hasn't been in the same position to put yourself in yeah. and try and be like, well, and try and relate, relate to it just by feeling. Right. So my question for you is when you were falsely incarcerated, um, during your time, did you ever think that there was hope? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I go through it in the book and it, it, was, it was a morphing. Um, Upon a guilty verdict and a sentence of 28 years, 17-year-old Jared was lost forever. 
You know, I instantly grew up and had to grow up inside of a prison with, with grown men who were, you know, 25 years to life based on the sentence that I have. That, that's what, you know, I was in there in prison doing time with. I'll say this. Um, I've, I've never been hit by a car, but for people who have, uh, I know enough to say, man, I don't want to be hit by that car, right? And so w what I'm telling you is that uh, I know enough through going through it to experience it to tell you that not only do you not want to be hit by the car that is the criminal justice system, but I'm telling you that it disproportionately hits people that aren't like you, and that's why you should care even more. You, you think about, you know, how we got to where we are uh, in, in this nation. Uh, we didn't get there because it was one sector of people. We got there because multicolored hands touched the foundation which built us to where we are right now. And so I think that just being, you know, as, as look, as a student, you know, your age, um, I wasn't offered events like this in the city of Chicago. So the fact that you are here encourages me, and it should encourage everybody else, that we got a dynamic group of people who are coming up. So now we need to make sure that we ready their hand for the torch that they will carry. And ho hopefully that torch is founded in the equality um, and supported by the science and data that we know um, is telling us we're doing this thing wrong. Thank you for your question. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for touching on so many parts of our justice system that are, are broken. One thing you haven't talked about, I wonder if you could speak to, is the parole system, in, uh, probably elsewhere, but in Ohio it's broken. Yeah. You've got, especially for old law inmates who have been there since before 96 with, when the laws change, they have indefinite sentences. Right. And there's like 4,000 guys in prison who Go up, the one guy I've been talking to over the past year, he's gone before the parole board 10 times, and because of the nature of his crime, which was violent, he's got no chance. But he's changed. Now he's 67 years old. Yeah. He poses no threat. There's guys in walkers and wheelchairs. Like, what can we do to change that system? Um, it's a really, it, Ohio in particular is the one I know, but it, I'm sure it's elsewhere. Right. It's really, it gives no chance for people to change. Yeah, b because I, I practice, you know, across the, the country, I get the opportunity to see the hallmarks and the similarities and stuff. And I'll just tell you, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, it, it, Ohio isn't alone in its, in its public, you know, defense problem and also its parole problem. And so I, again, go back and draw on the same thing that I've been drawing on before. Who is the person evaluating the person that they are considering to let out? If that person isn't a therapist, if that person isn't, you know, a forensic psychologist, if that person isn't a psychosexual psychologist or whatever it is, mm -hmm then that's the wrong person, all right? We're literally asking um, the business that it is now, the criminal justice system, um, to decide whether or not it lets out its commodity. That's never gonna work. And I, and I, and I wanna be clear in what I'm saying is that the criminal justice system is a business for some, but a debt to most, right? We don't, 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 do not disbelieve that everyone has a stake in the criminal justice system because they do. Your, your tax dollars, that's where they go. But there's a business behind this. There's the phone business, the $15 for the first minute, whatever it is for the rest, right? There is, there is the business of canteen. You know, there's no Amazon Prime in jail. So you're literally selecting the vendor that is the vendor. There's a business that is within this criminal justice system that is keeping us from repairing people 
and putting them back in the neighborhoods. And I spoke about that a little earlier in that we aren't getting to, you can lock up all the young black kids you want to. Um, it's not going to get us any safer, okay? It's not. Um, it's only going to create the cycle of what I just told you. They're going to come out um, 40, 50 uh, with nothing, and it doesn't help. So in your, in your, in, in your um, question, I would, I would, again, back to litigation. Someone needs to sue on behalf of the communities who are, are, are getting the people who are reentering society ill-prepared. I cannot state this enough. Y'all watched Hamilton? Y'all seen Hamilton? That play was about what? <clears throat> litigation. All right? Th that's what this country was built on. And now we, we have to not just get away from that. We need to continue to do it. Like, you about to rap. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, um, my name is Montreal Barron. I am a student at Wycliffe High School. I am uh, freshly 18. And uh, my question to you is, as a young black man who has been in certain scenarios of the sort of what your case was, my question was, how did, how did it go? How were you accused? What happened? Did just the police randomly show up to your house? Were you in the wrong place at the wrong time? What, what happened is what I want to know. The short answer to that is, I was a black kid along with two other black kids falsely accused by a white kid. Yeah. And that took all common sense out the accusation. Yeah. Like literally no one cared. The accusation yeah. was so outlandish. We were supposed to have snuck up a flight of stairs, raped someone, fled the building. But meanwhile, the police withheld a statement from a college student who said, no, that's not what happened. And I saw all of them hanging out with, our, with, with the lady who accused us. I would encourage you to read the book because it does a better job of explaining what took place. But I'll also tell you this. It was nothing more than a historical depiction of young black boys which supplemented the lack of evidence and, and supported the false conviction. That's really what it was about. And, and I would, I would in, you're 18, so you'll be going off to, to college, right? Yes, um, sir. You'll definitely be getting out of the house. The one thing that I wish I would have listened to my mother when she was telling me was this. Um, don't think that the justice system is going to treat you the same, because it's not, right? I mentioned in the book that there was a, a, a Stanford swimmer case where a young man was accused of a sexual assault that he did. He was caught in the act. He did it. And the judge gave him about nine months in jail. And you know why he said that? He says, just looking at him, he doesn't look like he's the type of person who could survive in prison. But meanwhile, young man, they'll look at me and you, and we fit the perfect model. And second question, real quick. Uh, where do I get the book from? And you can get it right on the table. <laughs> how much, how, yeah. Where is it at? Where? It's how on much? the table. And I'm going to put my number in. And I want you to call me and let me know what you're doing through school, okay? Appreciate you. Yeah. All right. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, before I get started, actually, I'm going to buy that book for the young man. Oh, man. I got Let's you go. for that. that. Too late. I got you. With that, with that being said, my name is Ronnie Cannon, and I work for a nonprofit organization here at, uh, in, in Cleveland, Ohio, that helps individuals that's coming out of the prison system get connected to employment. Shameless plug. Uh, with that being said, from a personal standpoint, you kind of spoke about counseling for those that are coming home from prison, right? Mm -hmm. uh, me as a returning citizen myself, after doing close to 20 years in prison, for me, it's never been a situation of going to talk to anybody about it, right. as you kind of spoke about. 
the relief that I got or the solace that I got was actually speaking to those individuals that was in a similar situation as myself that I felt that those are the people that can actually uh, compare or share stories with that understood more so than going to, say, a therapist, mm -hmm. as you're indicating, which kind of brings me to the second point that you raised where you were talking about, like, uh, the virus curing the virus, so to speak. Those individuals that have some vested stake in the prison system coming home to be able to give back to the system, I mean, give back to the society. Yeah. So if you can speak a little bit more about counseling from peer-to-peer yeah. -peer versus going to, say, a professional right. that may not know anything about what, say, yeah. a person like yourself or myself actually went through. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you stepping to the mic and sharing that story. And, and no shameless plug at all. I hope that people are watching and they support your organization as well because it's important and it affects all, you know, Ohioans when people come home. So what, I, what I'll say is this. It most certainly is power uh, and healing in amongst us convening, right? Uh, I did that for years when I would go to the, the Innocence Network conference and I would see so many people like myself and it was therapeutic. Um, but I wouldn't take dating advice, you know what I mean, from, from, from you know what I'm saying, because like we all were locked up. And, and, and I'll tell you this, Here, here's what i tell you, right? Uh, in all seriousness, and I, and I pray um, that, that, that more young black men start to take, you know, uh, this therapy thing seriously. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we don't deal with, with post anything. We deal with persistent traumatic stress because it's never stopped in, in our neighborhoods. And so... What I realized was therapy is working when you don't realize it, right? And I started to talk to people about what I went through. And what they were trying to do was encourage the conversation about what I went through. And I was just trying to talk about what I'm trying to get ready to do. I was, I was, I was compartmentalizing it without allowing myself to heal. And what it did was it would trigger my anger, right? I'm not going to make it seem like when I came home, I wasn't ready to wring people's neck for what happened to me. Because I was. I was never compensated before. Um, I came home and I'm, I'm staying with my mother and I'm 27 years old and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to church with my mom and, 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 and all the young ladies in the church around the day, man, they're like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, cause it was, it was me thinking I was going to catch up with these years and I needed to sit down and I needed to, to decompress and I needed to, to be able to talk to someone. And the thing is, I, I would encourage you to do both. Like, because there ain't nothing wrong with that, man. You can definitely learn and, and heal from people who have went through similar journeys. But there are professionals that are professionals for a reason. Um, and that's what I encourage everyone to do, especially people like you and I who've, who've walked those tears. Jared, hi. Thank you for being here. I was here the last time you were here, and I got to say, I, I echo the comments about your story. It's just inspirational, heartbreaking, and yeah. inspirational. So my name is Becky Rupert McMahon. I'm the chief executive of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association here in town. We have nearly 5,000 members, lawyers, judges, et cetera. And I want to go specifically to your call out to big law. So we work, I'm biased, I admit it, we work yeah. in a community that is one of the most giving in terms of what the legal profession gives back to mm -hmm. whether it's investing in the next generation. We have pipeline programs. We're in every high school in Cleveland and East Cleveland Shaw High School. Yeah. We have all kinds of efforts associated with trying to diversify the profession. Law continues to be one of the least diverse professions out there. And as relates to the criminal justice reform, this concept of pursuing litigation and calling on the big firms, let's be blunt. Big firms typically don't practice criminal law. They're typically not in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. right? 
big firms go where their clients tell them to go. So have you seen models across the country that are working that where pitches are being made to big law, big law firms to say, get invested yeah. in the criminal justice system? Because I'd sure love to hear what's yeah. working. Yeah, and, I, and look, and I want to make sure that I say this. Um, my point about big law getting involved was not to call out anyone. Because that's the last thing that I want to do is, is, is make people defensive because then people don't want to get involved. But what I'm saying is this. Um, we wouldn't have stopped fighting to come up with the vaccine until we came up with one. And that's all I'm saying in terms of what's happening right now. We gotta save our babies from becoming adult offenders. And if that takes us doing more, then we gotta do more. But what I would also say is this, one of, one of the folks that I've seen and I'm, I'm aware of um, who really do it on a, on a big level, level is the Scadden Fellow. Um, and I'm sure you've probably heard of the Scadden Fellows, but we need more of that, right? Because the name that we think of, we think of Scadden, right? Can you think of any other who have these fellows? And that's, that's what I'm saying. And I'm not saying it's not out there. I don't want people sending me emails talking about, you said, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, we, well, they, could, they could send their emails to me because we're yeah. always looking for new and different ways to right. get engaged. Because I think the commitment is there if we can make the right case yeah. for why not just big firms, but yeah. in-house counsel, small firms, all of us need right. to be in it. And you know, look, I'll tell you an easy way. Well, not an easy way. Nothing is easy in this criminal justice system. But here's a way to incentivize lawyers. The, the public defense system in Ohio, when the public defenders are conflicted out, there's a panel list of attorneys, right? And that courts can a, a appoint attorneys. Uh, that fee should be reflective of how serious you're taking this issue. I guarantee you, if you up that fee to about $250 an hour, there'll be a long line wrapped around a court building asking for cases to handle. So that's a unique way of doing it. But also there's this. Um, and, and I also am aware of what the, the, uh, the bar is doing because I did a little digging and research and stuff like that. Um, the program of pairing law students with lawyers to get them the best of the best training is important to every bar. I do post-conviction work. I'm not going to call out any lawyers, but I'm going to just tell you, there is a deficient area of competent attorneys handling some of the most high-stakes cases, um, and it shouldn't be that way, right? And so I would, I would you know... If you want to have me down to do some type of event to fundraise for you guys for a position, you know, that, that annually or every year creates a fellow, we need to create fellows and we need to start bringing in law students and, and encouraging them through the pipeline all the way with support where they don't have to worry about Sally Mae in their inbox three months after, after they graduate school. So I, I thank you for that question, but it's most certainly a, a call that I won't stop calling because I'm telling you, who would have ever thought that the White House would be lit up like a rainbow? Litigation got that done. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you everyone um, for being here and thank you again to Jared Adams and Michael Muti. <laughs> so
Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum featuring Jared Adams, author of Redeeming Justice, From Defendant to Defender, My Fight for Equity on Both Sides of a Broken, Broken System, part of our Authors in Conversation and Criminal Justice series. Our conversation was moderated today by Michael Muti, partner and appellate group chair at Benish Freelander, and we welcome guests at tables hosted by the Shar and Chuck Family Fowler Foundation, Friends of Dave Nash, Towards Employment, and Wycliffe High School. We're so happy to have you all here. Be sure to join us next Friday, August 12th, for our final forum in our Local Hero series this year. We'll be welcome Erica Anthony, co-founder of Cleveland Votes and executive director of the Ohio Transformation Fund. She'll be joining us right on the heels of our mayoral election to discuss how we can collectively work towards increasing voter engagement in future elections and beyond. Tickets are still available for this forum, and you can purchase them and learn more about our other forums at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Jared Adams and Michael Muti, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.